Thank you, Brother David. I appreciate it. You make me feel bad. <laughs> make me feel guilty. <clears throat> Everybody doing all right tonight? Anybody want to testify? I'm glad you're here. I appreciate your being with us. And I appreciate, once again, I say this. I appreciate the invitation to come and be with you this time. <clears throat> Some of you don't know this yet. Some of you are beginning to find out. But as you get older, you don't get as many requests. <clears throat> uh, most of you know, many of you know Bobby Jackson well. And as I said this morning, I understand he's going to be with you for the camp meeting in the fall. Um, he, he doesn't get many requests for revivals anymore. You know. <clears throat> but he does get asked to preach homecomings. <laughs> I told him one day, I said, well, you know, old preachers never die. They just preach homecomings. <clears throat> <clears throat> and that's about it. So thank you so much for having me to be with you. <clears throat> um, I appreciate getting to see so very many old friends. <clears throat> uh, it's been good to renew acquaintances. I was real glad when Fred Hersey came in because that meant there's an older geezer than I am in the crowd. <clears throat> Not a whole lot older, but anyway, a little bit. <clears throat> and uh, I appreciate the reception you've given me. You've been so warm, and it's been good fellowship. Um, and you've bought just about all the books I bought, brought. By the way, if anybody didn't get one and you wanted it, just give me a call or write me a letter or something like that, and we'll handle it by mail. <clears throat> but I appreciate it. Uh, all your generosity in providing for me. And uh, appreciate David Womack for letting me ride from Nashville with him. Uh, and uh, you ought to appreciate him that too also because that means you don't have any expense for my transportation up here. <laughs> so you can thank Randall House for that. <laughs> but uh, the Lord's blessings be with you. Turn to the little epistle of 1 John tonight. Five wonderful chapters. 1 John. Keep it open before you. I'm not going to read to start with, but we'll look at it quite a bit. In fact, I'm going to preach this whole book to you tonight. <laughs> well, not really. But instead of reading certain passages up front, we're going to look at a lot of it before we're done. <clears throat> so hang in there with me and follow along and stay with me, please. In the message this morning, I focused on what one must do to be saved according to Jesus. Now, I want to look at that same truth in a very different light tonight. Um, 
Because that truth is anchored in the whole New Testament. It's not just the gospel according to Jesus that I shared with you this morning. <clears throat> and I haven't had time and I won't have time except just this one more illustration of that in, uh, in uh, 1 John. <clears throat> um, believe it or not, you can also find this truth about what is required to be a disciple in Paul. Now, I know we sometimes think of Paul as the champion of salvation by grace through faith, which he is and was, and we all agree with him on. I know that. And sometimes people say, well, he and James contradict one another. They don't. Uh, you know that to start with because you know that both of them were inspired by the Holy Spirit and they're not going to contradict one another. But you can find in Paul the same truths, basically, that you find in James. I won't take time to try to show that to you now. But what I do want you to do from the epistle of 1 John is to think of it in terms of an examination. You know, Paul says uh, that we should examine ourselves whether we be in the faith. I don't know any better examination about whether we're in the faith or not than 1 John. It's an excellent examination, a test to determine who is a true Christian. Who is a Christian? 1 John has a whole lot to say to us about that. By the way, as we go into this, I want you to realize that what I said this morning and what I'll be saying tonight is quite different from some of the voices you hear within the Christian church. Some of the so-called Bible-believing Christian church, not liberals I'm talking about. I'm not talking about people who have uh, cultic doctrines. I'm talking about some very well-known, some very influential preachers who uh, say to us various things these days about salvation. It's what's called the free grace movement. Have you heard of that? The free grace movement among some very well-known voices within the Christian church. What they're saying is that saving faith is nothing more than an intellectual belief. It's merely your agreement that Jesus died for you. If you're sitting in a church, a congregation, or a service of some sort, and you hear the preacher say, Jesus died for you, and you say to yourself, well, you know what, that, that's bound to be true. You're saved, and always will be. You don't have to repent. You don't have to take him as your Lord. You don't have to change the way you live. 
Hey, and I'm, I'm quoting them. I'm not making this up. You don't even have to keep believing. Just that one action of agreeing that that's the truth saves you forever. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't believe that's the gospel. It's not the gospel according to Jesus. It's not the gospel according to James. If we had time to look at James chapter 2, the last half of chapter 2, it's not the gospel according to John either or any of the rest. It's not even the gospel according to Paul. So let's look at this in the epistle of 1 John. And let me share with you who John tells us is a Christian. Now, I want to start by acknowledging up front that John does show that a person is a Christian by faith. Very definitely. And so I'm going to make a statement that will be like two more statements I'll make through the course of the message. A definitive statement. A Christian, according to 1 John, by definition, and I want to emphasize that, is a person of faith. Now, it would be strange if John didn't make that point clear given that he also wrote the Gospel of John. And the Gospel of John, from beginning to end, is a Gospel of belief. More than any place else in the New Testament, John uses the verb for faith, which is to believe. By the way, it's interesting, he doesn't use the noun, faith. He always puts it in form of the verb. But anyway, I won't take time to try to show that to you, but I just remind you of what we all would agree with is probably the most well-known verse in John. What is it? John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then John chapter 20, verse 31, at near the end of his volume, John tells you why he wrote it. He said, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life through his name. So it's not any surprise to me, and I'm sure not to you either, that 1 John also makes this same truth very clear, especially in the last chapter of 1 John chapter 5. Look there at chapter 5 with me at two or three verses right quickly. Verse 1, John chapter 5. Everyone believing that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Verse 5. Who is the one who overcomes the world if not the one believing that Jesus is the Son of God. Verse 10, the one believing in the Son of God has the witness in himself. Verse 13, which sounds a whole lot like the last verse of the gospel, or the verse I gave you a minute ago, John 20, 31. 
But anyway, verse 13 of John, 1 John 5. These things have I written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. So there's no question about it. John is certainly teaching us that salvation is by faith. There is no contradiction between him and Paul, for sure. When Paul said, by grace you have been saved through faith, John said, amen, brother, preach it. That's the inspired truth about how to be saved. But now, just wait a minute. Don't let that mislead you. Or at least don't take it to be less than it really is. Don't draw a hasty conclusion from those verses in chapter 5. All I'm saying is that you better read his whole letter if you want to understand what he means when he says those things in chapter 5. Just like James, John doesn't think of faith without works as saving anybody. He does not view faith as a mere intellectual persuasion of the truth of some fact. And the rest of his letter makes that very clear, which brings me to my second point. Second point is, John links faith with positive behavior in a way that makes those two things inseparable. Faith and positive behavior go together in such a way that you can't separate them. And here's my second definition statement. A Christian, by definition, is a person who practices righteousness. That's just as true in John as that a Christian is a person of faith. So let me call your attention to some important things in what John says in this letter. I'm going to start with chapter 2, verse 29. John says, you know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him, that is, of God. Now, hold on a minute. That sounds like something we read a minute ago. Oh, yes, it was in chapter 5. He said, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And now he says, whoever practices righteousness is born of God. You see the parallel? He's making exactly the same point in both verses. Now, you know as well as I do that even if you didn't believe the Bible was inspired and thought that you could find a contradiction between something Paul said and something John said or something James said or something Moses said, you might, you might do that. But here's a man writing in his own letter and says... These two statements, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Whoever practices righteousness is born of God. Two statements that define who is born of God. The believer is born of God. The doer of righteousness is born of God. 
Now, some people take the approach to things like that by saying, well, we got to choose between those. No, you don't choose between them. You choose both of them because they are both inspired statements and they're both definitive statements defining who's born of God. It's not a contradiction. Now, I don't believe I'm misreading this. What I think we have to do is take both statements to be exactly parallel to each other, both defining who's born again. In that case, those two statements are not giving us two different ways of being born again. They're giving us two different ways of saying the same thing about who's born again. I think that's the way you have to do it. Now, before you judge me on this, let's look at some other statements in 1 John. Look at chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Verse 7 says, If we walk in the light, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. If this, then that. Now, now would, would it be correct if I said, let me try something else on you. If I said, if we believe Jesus Christ died for us and is our Savior, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Would that be correct? Would you agree if I said that? I think you would. I would. I mean, after all, I said it, so... Well, what I'm saying to you is that John is making another one of these kind of statements that mean exactly the same thing as that. If we walk in the light, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Now, let me ask you something else. Would you want to look at John and then say, oh, yes, but even if we don't walk in the light, the blood of Jesus Christ saves us from all sin. Would you dare to say that? I'll tell you what, I wouldn't dare to say that. Now, you already know that in the New Testament, walking uh, refers to the way we live, our behavior, our conduct. And to walk in the light is the opposite of walking in the darkness, right? I mean, you know, that makes good sense. Now look at verse 6. If we claim to be in fellowship with God and walk in darkness, we are sorry Christians. Is that what he said? You already know that's not what he said. He said we are lying. Lying. Do what? Yeah. If you claim to be in fellowship with God and walk in the darkness, you're lying. Now, the Lord's the one that said that, inspiring John. So take the Lord at his word. Saving faith. And it's the people who are saved who are in fellowship with God, see. Saving faith expresses itself by walking in the light. 
And anyone who doesn't walk in the light doesn't have saving faith. I can't get around that. Well, if that's not enough, look at chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Verse 3 says, By this we know that we know God, if we keep his commandments. Now, somebody says, oh, well, that doesn't tell the basis of how we are saved. That just tells the basis of our assurance that we're saved. It's the way we know we're saved, uh, not the way we come to know God. Well, okay, I'll take that. But let me ask you this question. If that's the way we know that we know God, how else could we know it? Doesn't seem to me like there's any other way to know it except by that. Could we know God? Could we know that we know God if we didn't walk in the light? if we didn't keep his commandments. Well, don't overlook verse 4. See, really, verse 3 doesn't finish it. Verse 4 does. Verse 4 says, the person who claims to know God, here's that claim business again, the person, person who claims to know God and does not keep his commandments is not just someone without assurance. He's a liar. And there again, don't look at me like that. I didn't say it. The inspired writer said that. In other words, his claim is fake news. Pardon me for that. Pardon me. I'm sorry. Would you want to say that the person who claims to know God and does not have saving faith is a liar. Well, of course you would. We would all agree with that. Well, I think in the same way, we must agree with what John is telling us here. A person who claims to know God and doesn't walk in his ways, doesn't keep his commandments, is a liar. They're just simply two ways of saying the same thing. You don't choose between them, you take them both. Saving faith is expressed by walking in the ways of God. By the way, that's what James is saying in the last part of James chapter 2. Without that, there is no evidence of saving faith. Well, it's more than that. Without that, there is no saving faith. Now, after all, that's what the Great Commission said. Make disciples, teaching them to observe all the things, whatever I've commanded you. If you don't teach them successfully to observe the Lord's commands, then you have not made them disciples. And as we have seen, if they aren't disciples, they aren't Christians. There are other verses, but I'm not going to keep laboring the point now. I think that's enough. Now, let me just mention some you can look up and look study later. Chapter 2, verse 17. He that does the will of God 
abides forever. Chapter 3, verse 7. He that does righteousness is righteous. And so on. Now, I know what we all often say. We always say it. We say, well, righteousness, right conduct, obeying the Lord, walking in the light, that's evidence of faith. Okay, I'm for that. It is. But I want you to put that just as strongly as John puts it. It is an evidence so certain, so necessary, that if you don't have the evidence, you don't have any grounds for thinking you have the faith. It's a required evidence, an essential evidence. Now, I do want to make a qualification here that I hope will keep you from misapplying what I've said. This kind of right conduct that John is talking about is not works, salvation. It is not salvation by works. It isn't even what the New Testament means when it denies that salvation is by works. That kind of works that salvation is not by, that kind of works is what we do in order to try to earn God's favor. That kind of works is what we or people try to do in order to motivate God somehow to save them because they've done something good for him. No, a thousand times no. That's not required for salvation, and that's not an evidence of faith. It's the very opposite of faith. This kind of works is obedience to God because you love and trust him. And it grows out of the regenerating work that God has done in your heart to change your very nature. And so genuine saving faith expresses itself in such works as these. So... As I said, then, a Christian, by definition, is a person who practices righteousness, who does right, who obeys God, who walks in the light, who keeps his commandment. Put it any way you want to. They all mean the same thing. Now, third, and this is the negative of that positive. This is the other side of the same coin. John denies that saving faith can be maintained in a sinful lifestyle. A Christian, by definition, here's my third statement, a Christian, by definition, is a person who avoids sin. 
In other words, if the preceding point makes clear what Christians do, this point makes clear what Christians don't. And to say it like John says it, they don't sin. Well, now don't take my word for that, okay? Look at 1 John again. Let's go to chapter 3. Famous passage. Many regard it as a difficult passage. I don't regard it as difficult at all. In the light that I'm expressing it to you tonight, I think it becomes pretty clear. As I say, it's just the other side of the same coin. Because you can't practice righteousness and practice sin at the same time. They contradict one another. So if a Christian by definition is a person who practices righteousness, then that same definition means he doesn't practice sin. And that's what chapter 3 is talking about. Verse 6 of chapter 3. Whoever abides in him sinneth not. Hmm. Whosoever sinneth has not seen him nor known him. Chapter 3, verse 8. He that committeth sin is of the devil. Verse 9, first part of verse 9. Whosoever is born of God does not commit sin. And that very same statement is in chapter 5, verse 18. Whoever is born of God sinneth not. So there it is, plain and simple. What are you going to do with it? A Christian doesn't practice sin. And now notice the implication of all of that, which is clearly stated in verse 10 of chapter 3. John says, and I'm putting it in my words, but this is what he says. You can tell the difference between a Christian and an unsaved person in this way. The children of God practice righteousness and the children of the devil practice sin. Those are two ways of life. You're living in one of them or the other. And that's the way you tell the difference between a Christian and somebody who's not a Christian. When you put it in that light, it's pretty clear, isn't it? Pretty simple, really, in terms of what he's saying. It really isn't as hard as it sometimes seems to be. The meaning becomes clear exactly in what we just read from verse 10. Christians practice righteousness. They don't practice sin. That's what it is. There's two sides of the same coin, as I said. If one is true, then the other is obvious. Either the one is true of a person or the other is. Whichever one of them, whatever one of them means. Now, here's what I want to try to help you with about that business of not sinning. Whatever one of them means, the other one means the same thing. Neither one of them mean 100%, 24-7 with never an exception. Neither one of them mean that, see. Neither the positive, practicing righteousness, nor the negative, avoiding sin. But both of them describe the habit and character of a person's life. And that habit and character is either the practice of righteousness or the practice of sin. So, 
What I want to argue for you, with you for in, in sort of reaching toward a conclusion. I'm not quite there yet, so don't get your hopes up. But it won't be as long as it has been. What I would argue is that this whole book of 1 John, and I would suggest in the light of this, especially if anything I'm said I'm, is troubling you, or maybe not even if it's troubling you, but you just want to uh, develop it even more and work on it yourself for it, presenting it as you preach and teach the gospel. The whole book makes this point since it contrasts the way of life of one who practices righteousness with the way of life of one who practices sin. So when we read statements about walking in the light or keeping his commandments, we should interpret statements about not sinning in the very same way we interpreted those. We don't expect a person who walks in the light to be perfect, do we? We know better than that ourselves. In the same way, we don't expect sinless perfection either, neither positive or negative on either side. We don't perfectly keep his commandments and we don't perfectly avoid sin. But we fundamentally do both of those two things if we're genuine believers and have saving faith. So, let me state some of the implications of what I've said to you tonight from this study of 1 John. First, John is telling us, basically, in this little letter, how we can tell the difference between the children of God and the children of the devil. That's why I said to start with, if you want the examination for who a true Christian is, this is the best place I know of to find it. The children of God practice righteousness and avoid sin. The children of the devil practice sin and avoid righteousness. Now, let me acknowledge, we may not always be sure how we human beings can recognize that difference and make that distinction. Not 100%, not in every detail. People's lifestyles are sometimes very confusing. And I'll be the first to admit that. But what John does is give us the principle. For us to go by. And that's the principle we have to go by and stick to it. Second, John is indicating a little bit more than just how a person standing on the sidelines can look at people and tell the difference between the saved and the lost. He is, in fact, defining, as I've said all along, he's defining who Christians are. He is expressing, let me say it this way, He's expressing what is essential to the nature of a Christian and non-Christians. Now, yes, certainly, we can make a distinction in our minds between the faith that saves and the works that give evidence of the faith. 
And we can certainly acknowledge, as I've already said, that John isn't talking about perfection in either side. But we better not allow our ability to talk about the little fine points here to reduce the basic truth that he's given us. The practice of sin and the practice of righteousness are definitional to who people are. So to practice righteousness and avoid sin is indeed characteristic of Christians. In other words, here's what I'm trying to say. John isn't just giving us options. Just, he's not just talking about alternative possibilities. He's giving us essentials. Read the whole epistle. I certainly didn't have time tonight to share with you a lot of other things he says that are rather similar to the things that I read. But if you read them, what you'll find is that a person whose actions are characteristically sinful, who doesn't love fellow believers, who doesn't keep Christ's commandments, who walks in the darkness rather than the light, who loves the world, who does not do the will of God, any or all of these things is not a Christian. And vice versa. It is the very nature of a Christian to do the will of God, to love the Father and fellow believers rather than the world, to walk in the light of the commandments of God and so to avoid sin. Now, if that sounds like salvation requires something more than faith, I certainly don't mean for it to. And I don't think John does either. He's the one that tells us it's by faith. But with all of that in the background of what he reaches in chapter 5, it helps us understand what he means by faith. Faith expresses itself, not in mere intellectual belief, but in one's lifestyle and conduct. And that's all James was saying in chapter 2. Now, do we always know absolutely, 100% of the time, perfectly, how to apply John's test to everybody we run into in our churches or out of them? Well, I can tell you for me, I don't. But I do know what the test is. Even if I don't always know how to apply it. And God knows how to apply it. Okay? Third, seems clear to me then that John is telling us, among other things, how to administer assurance of salvation. Are those words you, that make sense to you? Do I need to expand on them? You know, you may not even believe that we administer assurance of salvation to people. We do. Now, we don't do it exactly like all the denominations, all the churches do. I was 
Well, James Earl and Doris Raper and my wife Clara and I were traveling one summer and we were out in the Midwest where there weren't any Free Will Baptist churches where we were staying uh, overnight. So we got, we were going to be there on Sunday morning, so we got a newspaper on Saturday and looked at the ads. Um, I knew that Missouri Synod Lutherans were basically sound in the faith. So we decided to go to a nearby Missouri Synod Lutheran church that next morning. That's a church that um, uses what we call the liturgy, which is certain memorized words where, say, for instance, the pastor asks questions and the congregation answers out loud with certain uh, formulas that they've learned. And to my almost shock, at one point, after he had asked certain questions and they responded, the minister said, Now I pronounce your sins forgiven in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. I wasn't used to that. We don't administer sal uh, assurance of salvation that way, do we? <laughs> We'd get run out of town on a rail if we did. Rightly so. But we do administer assurance of salvation in our own indirect ways, at least by implication. Hey, look, when you take a person in your church, you're saying you're saved. When you let them stay in your church, you're administering assurance of salvation. When you teach them in such a way that they don't go away convinced that they're not saved, in a way, indirectly, we're administering assurance of salvation. We're leading our people to believe that they really are saved, one way or another. Well, I think what John is doing in this little epistle is administering the assurance of salvation. And I think what he's saying to us is that if you don't have these evidences, okay, evidences, if you don't have these evidences in your life, we don't have any grounds for assurance of salvation. Now, I know that can be pretty serious. It can even be troubling to someone. How, we all know we have a sinful nature, right? How can we possibly, with our sinful natures, have assurance of salvation? Well, let me just tell you how I deal with it, okay? How can I, conscious of my continuing sinfulness as a person with a sinful nature, how can I face these pronouncements that John makes and confidently say that I'm a Christian. Well, here's what suggests itself to me. I can only have assurance so long as I'm convinced, I'm satisfied, I'm certain that any sin 
is an exception rather than the rule of my life. That it contradicts who I am rather than expresses who I am. That works for me. Uh, I trust it'll work for you. Let me read you a quotation from Mark Dever. I certainly don't approve of everything Mark Dever says and does. But I agree with what he says in this regard. Quote, We must not cordially allow people to assume their conversion without examining themselves for evidence. If we do allow that, you know, allow them to assume they've been converted without examining themselves for evidence, if we do that, that may amount to nothing more than their blissful damnation. You understand what he means by that? They go to hell satisfied they're not going. And so it doesn't trouble them until they wind up there, of course. I go on with the quotation. Having prayed a prayer is not an acceptable grounds for assurance. There must be the observable fruit of repentance. The only external evidence that the Bible tells us to use, 1 John, in discerning whether or not a person is converted is the fruit of obedience. I believe that's right. I didn't plan to do this, but somehow I feel like it might be right to do it. Because, see, I know who we are. But sometimes, even among us, there's a problem. So I want you to bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us examine our hearts on the basis of the evidence. And while your heads are bowed and eyes are closed and you're not looking around, please, I just want to have a little private moment between you and me. I was just wondering if there's somebody here tonight that would say, well, preacher, if this is the case, I'm not sure I'm a Christian. And I need you to pray for me. And you want to raise a hand just long enough for me to see it and take it right back down. I will not do anything at all to expose you to anybody. Anybody? I trust not. But if it creates uncertainty in your heart and mind, seek out somebody to pray with you after the service, would you? 
and settle it with the Lord. That you haven't just intellectually believed that he died for you, but that you've taken him as your Savior and Lord to live for him. Heavenly Father, help us indeed to submit ourselves, to take up our crosses and follow you, to die on the cross with you and enroll in your school and hear what you teach us to practice and be and do and do it. To repent of our sinful ways and turn away from that and turn to you in submission and obedience. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.